The story of Palm Sunday is surely well known to all of you. It is, after all, the kickoff to Holy Week. Jesus tells his disciples to get him a colt that seems to be waiting for them. Then he rides the colt into Jerusalem while people wave their palm branches and shout, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And the people love Jesus because he's Jesus. And that's the story. Yep, we've heard this all before. Yet, if you're like me, there's some details here that stand out to you. Why a colt of a donkey? What does Hosanna mean? If the people are really happy to see him, why do they immediately ask who he is? Let's dive right in. You may remember from our Hebrew Bible reading that Jesus, uh, that there was a prophecy in Zechariah that Jesus was fulfilling by riding on the colt of a donkey. Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This passage was rapidly associated with the coming of the Messiah and describes an unusually humble king who commands peace to the nations. Broken bows and chariots, even war horses, will stand down. The donkey is simultaneously a humble beast of burden, explicitly not a war horse, and a symbol of Jewish kings. You see, the great king of Israel, Solomon, was crowned after riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we have the crowds, the crowds shouting, shouting Hoshiana, which means please save us, or possibly deliver us now, deliver us now. They're crying out to be saved, though not in the way Christian jargon would have you believe today. This isn't a call for eternal redemption, but a specific cry for deliverance from an oppressor, the empire of Rome. The crowd spreads their cloaks before Jesus, which is what Jehu's friends did when he was crowned king of Judah. You can read that story in 2 Kings 9 if you're feeling a little bit occupied or want to be occupied this week. They also cut down branches from the palm trees, laying them before Jesus' feet, which is how Simon Maccabeus was greeted after a great victory against the Greek occupiers. Seeing anyone riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, especially to such a gathered crowd as this, would have been obvious as a prophesied moment. That's why the people are asking, who is this? Who is this? They aren't asking for a name. They want to hear the Messiah. The Messiah is here. For the people hearing this in Matthew's community, there could only be one comparison. The Roman triumph, the greatest honor a Roman citizen could receive. Matthew's gospel was likely written and first distributed sometime in the late 70s or early 80s of the Christian era. 
This means that the great Judean revolt had already been crushed, Jerusalem destroyed, the temple torn down and looted, and the last of the zealots defeated by their own hand at the siege of the fortress of Masada. The result of all of this destruction in Jerusalem, in Judea, was a triumph for Titus Flavius, the Roman general who oversaw the destruction of Jerusalem and Masada, and as it turned out, the son of the new Roman emperor, Caesar Vespanius. Vespanius. I can pronounce these names, I swear. Now, I've used the word triumph a whole lot in this description, and I want to help you understand it a little better. I'm going to show a clip without sound from uh, HBO's Rome program. Um, This was in the early 2000s. There's a lot in the whole program that's not safe for church, um, but this part about the triumph, we can see the images and it won't be any problem whatsoever. So, a triumph. Oh, this is Jerusalem. I should have brought this over here. Um, A model of Jerusalem in the time of Christ, where you can see the temple that big, huge structure, and you might be able to see a tiny little ramp at the bottom there. That is still a three times size door, three times human sized door to get into the temple grounds. That gives you an idea of how big this temple really is. However, to the triumph. A triumph in ancient Rome was a grand parade led from the field of Mars outside of Rome to the Senate along the triumphal path. In the front of this great pompa, or procession, were all the spoils of war taken by the general in service to Rome. Works of art, gold and silver artifacts, prisoners and slaves, all were marched through the streets of Rome. Musicians would play flutes and drums. Dancers would dance lasciviously. In the case of Titus Flavius, his triumph was accompanied by the great menorah from the temple along with many captive zealots, Sicarii, priests, and Levites. Following the spoils of war was the general himself, riding in a chariot pulled by white war horses. His face would be painted red, and he would wear a wreath made of laurel branches, which represented the god Jupiter. Following the general would be all the legions of soldiers who returned from the battle, from the battles, allowed the rare privilege of marching into Rome in full battle uniform. All through the parade, slaves would carry heavy sacks of gold and silver coins, throwing them into the crowds for the ordinary people. These coins were usually newly minted, carrying an image of the general or later the emperor and an inscription highlighting what they had done. In the days of the Roman Republic, a slave would ride with the general on the chariot, whispering to them throughout all the glory of the parade that they were, in fact, mortal and not a god. Later, the generals would often throw grand spectacles of sporting contests and games, even gladiator battles. If all of this sounds a little oddly familiar, think of the anthem the choir sang this morning. Godlike youth, breathe the flutes, let there be sports. Clearly, the anthem is bringing to mind this ancient triumph in a different setting. Now, this is a big deal. Triumphs were usually only given at the end of a long military and civil career. 
Families with ancestors who had received triumphs were considered noble in the Roman system, even if it had been generations since anyone in the family had done anything notable. Having one ancestor who had received a triumph was enough. These noble families kept death masks even, impressions of the face taken after death, and they hung these images of their ancestors on the wall in their villas so they could long be remembered. It was a sort of immortality of memory. So, when I say that Matthew's community had that sort of a triumph in mind, maybe some of them had even been captives in the triumph of Titus Flavius, How does that change how they would have heard the story of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem? Immediately, if you know the story well, it's clear that this is a complete, total subversion of the Roman triumph, right? Instead of riding in on a chariot of battle with four white horses, Jesus is granted honor as one who was preaching peace through healing and love, not peace through fear and rides into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey, not paraded through with weapons and soldiers, but surrounded by crowds of ordinary people. Instead of throwing coins out to the ordinary people, the ordinary people throw branches and clothing on the road before him. He is honored by them instead of throwing coins at them. He arrived in true humility. As Paul puts it in the letter to the church in Philippi, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to exploit, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. The crowds showered palm branches and clothing before him. Palm branches. This is, what, the meat of Palm Sunday, right? We have palm branches. What is the deal with palm branches? Why do we wave them? What do they mean? They weren't just a random addition, but were a great symbol of Jewish independence. Now, while the menorah represented Jewish religious independence, the symbol usually chosen for political independence was the palm branch of the date palm dating from the Maccabees in the Hasmonean dynasty. Yeah, Ilana calls me out on that. I mispronounce that all the time. The Hasmonean dynasty. Waving palm branches was like waving a don't tread on me flag during the American Revolution. Or like the Palestinian flag uh, pattern kefia that's worn to show solidarity with the people in occupied Palestine. It evoked a visceral, powerful reaction and was so meaningful a symbol that it was actually stamped into Jewish coins as a symbol for the nation. The coin on the left here is a bronze coin from the second Jewish revolt, so after the period we're talking about. But you can see a palm tree with baskets of dates underneath the palm. That's what that is. And ancient Hebrew characters written around it. Later, it got stamped into Roman coins. That's the one on the right. With the words, Judea capta, Judea capta, Judea captured, Judea conquered. The Romans knew of the importance of the symbol of the palm tree and combined it with a weeping woman on this coin. While a centurion stands tall 
guarding over everything. Now, this is from the triumphal arc of Titus Flavius, showing the items of the temple in Jerusalem carried through the streets in Rome. When he became emperor, Titus Flavius melted down much of the gold and silver from the temple to fund building projects, including the Colosseum in Rome. The great menorah and other artifacts that weren't melted down were placed in a newly constructed and ironically named Temple of Peace in Rome itself. But that's not even the end of their story. After being seized by the Vandals, they would be recovered in the era of Justinian I, who threw a Christianized triumph of his own for the general and paraded the artifacts to the streets of Constantinople. Today, they've been lost again, never having been returned to the Jewish people throughout their long history. You see, when we wave palm branches and remember the events of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at the beginning of that holy week, we remember the nationalist pride and desire for a mighty Messiah. But that's not the Messiah that God sent. That's not the Messiah that Jesus is. Not a warrior, but a maker of peace. Not one who held himself up as a god above all the earth, but true divinity who was humble enough to be human. Humble enough to die a criminal's death on the cross for crimes he didn't commit. And so Holy Week begins at the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it certainly doesn't end there. This week continues with Jesus going into the temple, throwing out the money changers. He spends most of his time on the streets with the people, tells the disciples to prepare a room for Passover where they have their last supper. Judas betrays him to their enemies. Jesus is condemned, tortured, crucified, dies, and is buried. He rises from the dead on Easter and continues his ministry until the ascension. This pattern of low point to high point, or rather high point to low point and back to high point, if I can get all of my notes correct, is our path for this week. High point, low point, high point. From Palm Sunday to Passover to Maundy Thursday to Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we too will follow Christ. Today we celebrate Jesus Christ's nonviolent triumph, peaceful entry, and subversion of the powers and principalities of empire. Jesus paid the price for this subversion, and yet God showed that that price was enough to pay for all of us in the end. So, may you be strong in your faith, working with God for the cause of peace in the world. May the Spirit fill you with energy as you celebrate Christ's triumph. And may Jesus hold you tightly as you remember his death this holy week. Amen.